Hello and welcome to another episode of Healing Through Pain, a podcast dedicated to the mission of walking people towards healing and health. In each new episode, we will discuss how to show up well for the responsibilities and opportunities that life sends our way. Here is your host, Stephanie West, a licensed practicing counselor in the state of Michigan, a teacher, and a professor who lives her life at the intersection of mental health and education. Thanks so much for following along. Welcome back, friends. So on Monday's episode, we had a conversation that laid the foundation for the first five ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And the first five really kind of rally around what goes on in our person. So physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, as it relates to like one person grappling with really hard things. The second piece for today is going to focus on environmentally what can also happen and when tough stuff happens happens in our context, in the environment in which we are raised, we may in fact walk away with adaptive responses that are not helpful or not healthful because we needed them or we perceived a need for them in the context in which we grew up. And that which we don't understand, we are often prone to repeat. So if you hear these things, and so as I go through the ACEs, and you wonder, oh, yes, that happened in my story. What did I do to adjust or what did I do to accommodate that fact? Then you would start to think through, am I still doing those same behaviors now because they became my habit, they became my default coping strategy or my default coping mechanism? There's a lot of exploration we can do once we understand that maladaptive choices show up for a purpose at some point in our story. But where I want to kind of set the table for today, this last week I was talking to a young woman and she is someone who I tell her often, I just see her as such a Viking. I mean, she has gone through, you know, some really really, really difficult things in her life story. Some of them are in her way back context and some of them are more in her more recent decade. And so she's in her early 30s. She has a child and she is walking towards possibly planning for a second child. To get to the first child was an absolutely grueling task. There were several miscarriages along the way. There was some emotional abandonment that happened. It was a really, really tough context for her. The second thing that she's working on in her own story is starting starting to put her foot in the water of, or put her toe in the water rather, of change. So making different decisions related to her job. As we went through her story this last week, she shared with me kind of a really tumultuous history of putting herself out there and feeling scorned or burned as it relates to her vocation. And so for her to take a step forward and try to kind of re-engage what her potential is, re-engage what her options are, there's just a lot of really cool shifts happening. And there's a lot of empowerment and a lot of self-agency that's happening in her story, but she doesn't give herself credit for it. So as we were having a conversation this last week, I was asking her to talk to me about her son. So her son's around five or six years old, and she is telling me all of the cool, complex, diverse quirks of this child. So he is, let's say his name is John. He is afraid of the water, but he is boldly trying to learn how to swim. And he is full of big emotions and responses, but he also has some really cool insights. 
needs. And he can be a really big handful, but he can also be the most gentle and compassionate and loving kid. And as she's explaining all of these little pieces of him to me, she's just beaming as she's sharing about her child. And I said to her, I said, thank you so much for walking with me through the complex nature of your boy. I hear there are some things that frustrate you, some things that overwhelm you. And then there's this awe and this curiosity and this excitement for him and for who he is. And she just stopped and she said, yeah, he's just the coolest kid. And I said to her, I said, I want you to remind me how old he is. And she she gave me his age. And I said, and I want you to think of who you were at that age. And I want you to think of what it would have been like to have you by your side cheerleading you the way you are for your own son. I want you to think of what would it have been like to be loved for precisely who you are and someone just be filled with excitement and awe and curiosity and overwhelm, but patience for you. And I said, and that wasn't in your story. And I'm so sad with you that that wasn't in your story because you've created a dichotomy here. You understand what it looks like to love well as you relate mother to son, but you didn't understand what it looked like to be loved well as it related parents to child. And because that's true, the last 25 years have been so complex and difficult for you. And even as I talk to you about the courageous steps I see in your own story, you sit there and you roll your eyes or you get really, really quiet or you're dismissive of what you're accomplishing. And I said, imagine your story if the way you spoke about your son is the way that you are loved. And I said, I want you to understand just how tragic that actually is, not in a self-pity way, but in a way that we have clear context why the road's been so hard for you and the absolute badassery that's showing up here as you disrupt that cycle and show your son what it looks like to be loved well and to be loved differently. And I was just kind of gobsmacked by how quiet she got. And, and I wasn't gobsmacked how quiet she got. That's not what I meant there. What happened in those moments is, is she got really tearful and she got really appreciative that I complimented her, that I saw her hard work, that I affirmed her. And then she got really sad and reflective because she understood the gravity of what she missed out on because she didn't have an adult on her side, unapologetically cheering for her and unapologetically showing up for who she was as an individual. But what gobsmacked me was just how lead in the balloon was in my own chest when I said those words to her because I felt it reverberate through my whole being and I felt just the weight and the grief of understanding that some of us miss that. Some of us do not have that cheerleader by our side who says to us who you are is okay and how you navigate the world is just fine. And we go to number six. Number six is were your parents ever separated or divorced? Now, there are a lot of people that walk into my office and say, we are doing divorce in the cleanest way possible. It's better for the kids. I promise you it's fine. And there's plenty of adults that walk in and say, my parents divorced and I promise you I'm okay. Here's what I know. Divorce dismantles almost every piece of the infrastructure in a child's life. Finances get reconfigured. Geography often gets reconfigured. Traditions and holidays get reconfigured. And kids don't have much of a say in it. So they are having decisions made on their behalf and they rarely get a voice in the matter. And they're just told, oh, you're resilient. Just go with it. Things will turn out fine. Divorce absolutely affects what goes on in a kid's life. And it will contribute in many cases to maladaptive coping strategies and maladaptive defense mechanisms. The next thing that shows up, number seven, was your mother or stepmother ever a victim of violence? So now we're talking about violence by proxy. We're talking about not something where you're physically being harmed, but if you're in a chaotic environment where someone else is being harmed, your body is still going to wire in a way that says this is not safe, even if 
it's not hands getting put on you. Number eight, have you lived with someone who is a problem drinker or uses street drugs? Now, there are a whole bunch of other self-soothing things that people might do that are just as damaging. Substance use is one of those things that will leave some sort of residual damage in the lives of many kids because there's this dichotomy that shows up. And again, kids' brains don't think abstractly prior to age 13. So when they see dad choose the bottle or mom choose the bottle and things spiral, in essence, they're establishing a hierarchy where mom is choosing alcohol over me or dad is choosing drugs over me or they're prioritizing the habit over me. And when that's the message that lands, that is an incredibly painful thing and a child often will have to self-soothe or will find other ways to occupy their time or other ways to feel better about their life. Number nine, was a household member affected by mental health struggles, by suicide, etc.? This is probably one of the most underreported ACEs because many people aren't aware of just how pervasive mental health distress was in their home because whatever it was was normal. If mom was borderline personality and vacillated through a whole host of emotions in a rapid time span, it's not like the kid's like, ooh, something's off with mom. The kid's like, yep, that's mom. But their body wires to protect them because mom is unpredictable. If dad has delusions of grandiosity and dad's a rampant narcissist, is a kid going to be able to navigate that and understand, oh, that's just dad being a narcissist? No, they're thinking, okay, that's what it looks like to have authority. It's okay to talk to me that way because it's been normalized in their life. They're not going to be able to create distinction that this is not okay and their bodies will wire for whatever the residual abuses that happens in context where parents have mental health distress and mental health struggles. When mom is so depressed that she's not getting out of bed or when dad is so anxious ridden that he's not making sound decisions, the kids will be affected by that. It is inevitable that there is going to be secondhand struggle because of the coping strategies and the defense mechanisms and the mental health distress of mom and dad. Then the last one, was there a household member incarcerated? That takes an entire identity and and puts a big question mark on it. If mom or dad is in jail, suddenly we have to grapple with kind of the nature versus nurture struggle that many people might not have to be curious about. And, And maybe with the mental health struggle in number nine, that one also shows up quite a bit. But when family members are incarcerated, that is painful. Now this, like I said in the last episode, there are a bunch that aren't included in the 10 ACEs. And I want to give a list of probably eight more that I came up with that fall into more of the environmental issues that show up. So kids who are adultified or parentified from a young age, meaning it was their job to help maintain the environment. It was their job to help care for siblings. It was their job to help manage mom and dad's emotions. A lot of this verbiage comes out of addiction literature, but it it definitely goes far beyond those who grew up in addiction context. Number two, kids who grow up in a foster care system. Go back through all of the ACEs and much of that organically happens in their story. Things where resources are scarce, things where they're having access to violence, things where they're getting abused, or maybe they were taken out of a context where abuse was normalized, and now they're trying to be in a context where abuse isn't the norm, and their bodies are sending faulty signals, and their amygdalas are hijacked, and they don't know how to regulate because they're so used to chaos. That also translates with children who have been adopted. There's for sure an adjustment period if they're going from an unhealthy environment into a healthy environment, they're going to have to recalibrate because their body has been wired for chaos. Their mind has been wired for chaos. Kids who lose a parent, what a tragedy to go into some of your most formative years and you don't have a parent there. And I walk through with a lot of clients who lose parents at a young age, 
even if it's expected, it leaves a mark. It becomes significantly difficult and we do have to cope with it somehow. Kids who are raised by non-biological parents. Now there's a whole host of kids and a whole host of contexts that show up here, whether you're raised by aunt or uncle, whether you're raised by grandparents, whether you're raised by neighbors, there's a whole host of ways it might play out. When non-bio parents are a part of your story, it means something's going on where your biological parents aren't your sole caretakers. And there's complexity that comes with that observation. ACEs does nothing to account for kids in poverty, kids with scarcity of resources, whether it's community resources, familial resources, educational resources. Poverty is potentially going to have a residual effect because scarcity of resources means we have to adapt somehow. And sometimes our coping strategies aren't going to be healthy or helpful. The last one I want to talk about, and none of these are for the context of blame or accusation, but categorically, one of the more difficult contexts where there is going to be struggle is when there's kids with special needs in the home. Kids who are higher needs are going to demand more attention, more resources, which means other kids are going to have access to fewer resources. That's the law of energy distribution. That's how it goes. And so parents in those contexts have to spend copious amounts of effort trying to at least neutralize some of the consequence of what maybe neurotypical kids experience or uh, physically able kids experience in a home where there's special needs. One of the things I walked through with another client this last week, and she is someone that has done just monumental work in her own life to be healthy and well, and she's come from a context where a lot of these ACEs show up. So she's talking to me about a new win that she had this week. And I said to her, I said, I want you to understand something about your context. I said, there's a reason why the work you're doing here is so difficult. Number one, you're disrupting trauma going into the next generation. You are fighting tooth and nail for your kids to be okay. And that in and of itself is exhausting work. It's praiseworthy. It's incredible work that you're doing. But I said, it extends the opposite way too. And you are going back and inviting your parents into understanding their stories differently. And you are modeling health and you are working on sharing with them that they too could find other ways to deal with their hurt and deal with their harm and deal with their damage. So yours is multi-directional and you're inviting your siblings into understanding the world differently too. And you're modeling for them what health looks like and what they too could have access to if they put in the work. So I said, if you're ever wondering why you're so exhausted with this emotional work and with this behavior work, understand that it's flowing in so many different directions. And of course you're fatigued because you are dismantling and unshackling yourself from a multi-directional assault on your ability to be healthy and well. And you're doing a heck of a job, my friend. And that's what I want to impart to you as well. If you come from a hard context, there is healing that's possible. There is hope that things do get better. But first, you have to start by saying, wow, hard stuff has shown up here. And you have to grieve the fact that things for you weren't the same as they could have been if someone loved you well, if someone took care of you, if someone prioritized your needs, if someone saw you in the space that you were in with the complexities that you have and said to you who you are is okay. And then they chose to walk with you through all the hard stuff that showed up. If that's not in your story, friends, there's a good chance that there's some residual damage that's shown up. But what I know to be true is that in spite of the hardest of contexts, change is possible. Healing is possible. It is absolutely arduous work. It is exhausting work, but it's worth it because you're worth it. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Please share this content with friends and family. Feel free to connect with Stephanie at healingthroughpain21 at gmail.com. Until next time, be well.